You're tuning in to episode 147 of Mid-America Reformed Seminary's Roundtable Podcast, a podcast where the faculty of Mid-America discuss Reformed theology and cultural issues, all from a Reformed perspective. I'm Jared Luchibor, Director of Marketing here at the seminary. Thank you for tuning in. Well, I'm here in part three of Early Church History with Dr. Alan Strange, Professor of Apologetics and Church History here at the seminary. Thank you for coming back once again, Dr. Strange. It's good to be here. Always here. Always ready to engage our good supporters and listeners. Ready to engage here this time on the fellows Irenaeus and Tertullian of church history. Dr. Strange, can you tell us a little bit about Irenaeus and some of his significant contributions in the early church? Well, let me just say, uh, Jared, since I'm a church historian, that we are interested in place So uh, you'll notice when I was talking about the Apostolic Fathers, I was giving you some of these places, and I gave you for Justin Martyr that he was in the Levant or Palestine, he was in Ephesus, he was in Rome, and then, but he was mainly a man of the East, and then we were talking about also Origen, who is in Alexandria. These were both men who were chiefly in the East, in that part of the church, and in the early church, it's going to come more and more to to be a discussion about those who are in the eastern or the Greek half of the church and those who are in the west or in the Latin half of the church. And um, two men that we're talking about today uh, are in the west. Irenaeus uh, was the bishop of Lyon, which is was in Gaul at the time, which of course is France. So he oui. is in modern-day uh, France. He was a student of Polycarp, as I mentioned, who was a student of John, and he became a missionary apologist. He's in the latter part of the second century, born, we're, we're really not sure when he was born, around 150, we'll say, 140 to 160, somewhere in there. And um, in 177 or 78, uh, he was sent from Gaul to Rome to deal with Montanist. Montanists was an ancient church heresy that had arisen from a fellow named Montanus, um, or Montanus, uh, along with some others, Priscilla Maximilla. That uh, heresy or teaching originated uh, in Phrygia and spread to Rome and North Africa. And it was really, it was not a doctrinal heresy in the sense that they had uh, wrong views of God or Christ or salvation so much as it was a very ascetic heresy. They were all killious. They thought Jesus was going to come back. They all lamented the fact that tongues had ceased and miraculous gifts had ceased, and they wanted the starting back up of that. They Mm -hmm. said, that needs to begin. We need to have a charismatic renewal movement, so to speak, which is interesting because it means that they had ceased. As we who were cessationists teach, the Montanists are one of several clear testimonies, you might say, to the cease of that. But they're largely orthodox, and um, but, but they were opposed here by Irenaeus, but more so he opposed the Gnostics, uh, the detection and overthrow of the pretended but false Gnosis is his primary attack on the Gnostics, which we learn a lot about the origins and teachings of Gnosticism. And this is a very interesting thing, uh, Jared, because 
earlier scholars, I mean by this, skeptical scholars in the 18th and earlier part of the 19th century would read someone like Irenaeus and say, Irenaeus and the Orthodox fathers are clearly misrepresenting the Gnostics. They're arguing against them, but they're misrepresenting them because they're showing them to be really bizarre in their thought and in their theology. They right. have this this bizarre view of almost a disembodied uh, sort of thing that's that's secret and there's all this secret knowledge and these odd views and ceremonies. And what happened was um, we had a bunch of discoveries. I mentioned uh, 1873, the Dedike, sort of from that kind of a point on, uh, we've discovered many, many things, particularly, for example, in 1945 in Nag uh, Hammadi there in Egypt in a pagan cemetery near the Nile, we discovered a collection of 13 papyrus codices that contain 49 Gnostic treaties. And you might say, well, why were these treaties buried like this? Well, because the teaching of heretics was to be done away with. It was to be destroyed. So part of the reason we knew the heretics only through people like Irenaeus was because they were the Orthodox and the heretical writings had been destroyed. Well, what happened, though, when we started unearthing in the last couple of centuries the writings of the actual heretics themselves, we unearthed them a lot. What we found was that Irenaeus was correctly representing them. Mm -hmm. He wasn't slandering them. He was rightly representing them. And what then happened was the liberal critics changed their tune. And they said, yeah, the Gnostics were unfortunately people that got defeated by the Orthodox. And they held all sorts of really cool things. Now, of course, I'm being, I mean, that's not exactly what a scholar would have said, <laughs> but it's what Dan Brown and many others would say. Yeah, it's that right. whole business of Brown and the lie about stuff in the early church, like Jesus' divinity was saved by one vote at Nicaea. That's not even close to the truth. It was it was overwhelming. There were only two in the other direction, and they were excommunicated and thrown out. And you, you get a lot of that around still, like lost scriptures and hidden scriptures, all this kind of stuff, uh, where the those who weren't the Orthodox are thought to be wonderful. But he, uh, Irenaeus, also had some very important stuff uh, on something called the doctrine of recapitulation. If I could share a little bit about that, in the book that I wrote on the imputation of the active obedience of Christ— in the Westminster Standards, uh, I talk about this, and I talk about uh, Irenaeus and some others with respect to this. In uh, chapter 2, I'm talking about some antecedents to active obedience in the ancient and medieval church. And I mention uh, particularly that Irenaeus, his recapitulation theory, might best be understood as an early version of the doctrine of active obedience. Although his view on recapitulation is often categorized as one of the theories of the atonement, really it's probably more properly a theory involving the life of Christ as much as, if not more, his death. Mm. Uh, Irenaeus based his theory on Ephesians 1.10, which indicates that God's plan for the fullness of times is to gather together in one all things in Christ. And the Greek words for gathering or uniting 
uh, is in the Latin rendered as recapitulate. Mm -hmm. So this is where we get this recapitulation theory. The idea here is that Christ is seen as the new Adam who succeeds where the first Adam failed. And our listeners may be saying, yeah, I know that. Well, the first to put it that way was Irenaeus, as far as we know. The notion that Christ undoes the wrong that Adam did while containing an atonement conception, Christ died and paid the penalty, chiefly involves Christ obeying where Adam disobeyed, Christ keeping the law that Adam failed to keep. And there are other passages, Romans 5, 12 to 21, 1 Corinthians 15, 20, 21, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that get addressed by Irenaeus and others in this subject. Now, Irenaeus also does quote Justin Martyr, whom we've talked about, uh, as summing up his own handiwork in himself. And so he looks back to some people like that, but he's the first to have this uh, clear doctrine, and he puts it this way. Irenaeus, you could say, sets forth this recapitulation doctrine this way. He, Jesus Christ, commenced afresh the long line of human beings and furnished us in a brief, comprehensive manner with salvation, so that what we had lost in Adam, namely to be according to the image and likeness of God, that we might recover in Christ Jesus. He, Jesus, became what we are, that he might bring us to even be what he is himself. And so we have this uh, very important doctrine that Irenaeus brings us. Let's move on to Tertullian. Who was he and what were some of his greatest theological contributions? Well, Tertullian is... One of the most fun guys to deal with. <laughs> Tertullian uh, is, of course, in the West. He's born in the city of Carthage, which is in North Africa, in modern Tunisia. His dates are around 155 to, to 220. And um, he's considered the first, great, the, the first great Latin church father. I mentioned Irenaeus being in the West, but Irenaeus was still writing in Greek. Uh, Tertullian is the first one. Uh, in the West, now really writing in Latin, and will give it a certain cast. Latin will become the language uh, of the West. And he was born of pagan parents, and he was a lawyer. He was quite a good lawyer, and you can tell in the way that he writes things that that's so. And so in the history of the Christian church, we have people like him who was trained to be a lawyer, Calvin who was trained to be a lawyer, others also. And he's converted uh, around 193, And from just in the next number of years till about 200, he had a tremendous literary output. Now, I mentioned earlier the Montanists, and many have historically said over time that around 207, Tertullian became a Montanist. But scholars today will acknowledge that Tertullian certainly agreed with their asceticism. This was not the kind of fellow that you would have over to a party who would be there to late hours uh, indulging in all sort of riotous behavior. That was not Tertullian. Uh, he was a very strict uh, and reserved person in his ethics. But the question is, did he really embrace Montanism or did he just appreciate some of their emphases of greater rigor, you might say, and discipline? And he did seem to value uh, a return to charismatic gifts as well. But whether he actually became a Montanist is something that's really debated. His 
writings fall into several main categories. It's often spoken of as apologetics, controversial treatises in which he defends Christianity against heresy. So apologetics is defending the Christian faith against paganism and unbelief. And controversial treaties or polemical works are defending Christianity against others who claim to be Christians but who are departing from the faith. Uh, and then a whole host of moral works. His moral works uh, are things like to his wife on monogamy, and he says, if I die, have enough sense never to marry again and live a good chaste life after. He taught that second marriages were always wrong after the death of your spouse. He had a work to women where basically he said, don't take off that makeup and and uh, don't go to the theater. Now, I should say this. When they said in that day, don't go to the theater, that wasn't quite like even going to your local theater or watching a movie in your house. The theater was, of course, plays, and they were multi-day, more like Woodstock. Mm. You would be there, and they would have these plays, and people would be engaged in the use of drink and drugs. They would be engaged in the use of illicit sex. And the Christians did not go to those. The Christians, they were told not to go to them by people like Tertullian, by people like Justin Martyr, by everybody. Don't go to those. Don't be involved with them. Uh, they didn't go to the games and the circuses. They were not interested in, in gambling. They certainly were not involved in things where people, uh, people's lives were lost as a part of sport. The Christians were opposed to this. And this was one of the reasons that Christians were taught to be part of their persecution, and they were said to be haters of mankind because they didn't do the things that all good Romans do. But a lot of the things that good Romans do were pretty bad stuff. So you have to think about that even in terms when it's said that the the, the Didache was too moralistic. You can understand why they were moralistic in such a wicked world, if you will. It was a really nasty world. Not only was there abortion, but there was the killing of infants who were born. They would be abandoned uh, infants would be left by the side of the road, and Christians would often adopt them. Right. And so Christians began to to get a reputation for being uh, very loving and caring uh, in this respect. But just one more thing about uh, about Tertullian, his controversial treatise. He has a work in two thirteen called Contrapraxius, which is defending the Trinity over against the view of modalism which is that God is just one. He's not three persons. And he argued very much against that. And he also attacked docetism very much in a work called De Carne Christi, On the Flesh of Christ, teaching that Christ was fully God and fully man. Wow, it's good to see the passion and the zeal of these early church fathers, Irenaeus and Tertullian, and their stand on Orthodox Christianity against false teachings that were uh, being propagated in the early church. Thank you, Dr. Strange, for um, taking us through those two men. Well, next time we're going to be looking at the relationship between Arius and Athanasius and the very important council that took place in Nicaea surrounding the controversy of the person of Jesus Christ. Stay tuned for then. For more episodes, you can find us on our website at midamerica.edu slash podcast and wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Be sure to search for and subscribe to Mid-America Reformed Seminary's Roundtable. I'm Jared Luchibor. Till next time.